0: Hello, and welcome to the Tamara Talk Circular podcast. In this episode, we're going to continue our conversation with Clarissa Morofsky, co-founder and CEO of ReLoop. She'll continue to share her concepts of a circular economy, along with the challenges and the opportunities that a circular economy holds. Clarissa, welcome back.
1: Thank you very much. Good to be back. Me too.
0: Clarissa, we left our last discussion talking about recycling and um, actually the financial incentives, and if it was really worth the cost of recycling, and you gave a very clear yes it is. I'd like to turn our attention now to what's, what we're seeing in the plastic industry, and in that the plastic industry is trying to position itself as a more sustainable industry with sustainable solutions. With regards to plastics, are biobased plastics and degradable plastics the answer?
1: Well, that's a question that lots of people are asking these days. And let's start with defining what these bio-based and biodegradable or even compostable plastics are. Bio-based plastics are plastics that are made from biogenic material. These are materials that are grown in soil that ultimately, while they're growing, they're sequestering carbon, and then you can use the biomass from that material, like corn stalks, as an example, to actually make a plastic product, a polymer. And the reason that they're quite popular is because, of course, when you're using bioplastics, you don't have that whole carbon footprint that is the same as a plastic that is derived from crude oil. And that's why it became quite popular, this notion of carbon-free plastics. But bioplastics still require growing substances to turn into plastics. And there's questions around whether these should be a priority for our agriculture to be growing material to make plastics and packaging as an example versus growing food, for example. So bioplastics in that way, they might have a better climate profile because they're made from a sustainable resource. But then there are other types of environmental considerations that come from farming. So looking at the impacts of eutrophication, acidification, use of pesticides, and all of these things are often not factored into that calculation as to whether or not a bioplastic is better than a traditional plastic. And the other thing I wanted to say about bioplastics is when you put a bioplastic in an incinerator, it still creates the same carbon that a normal plastic would create. When you put it in the sea, or it ends up in the sea or as beach litter, it's still going to take just as much time to biodegrade and it's still going to have the very same impact on the environment. So from that perspective, it really doesn't help the situation at all. Now let's move to something which is completely different, which is compostable or biodegradable plastics. And typically these are designed to break down into the environment fairly quickly. But they're designed in a way that they usually require a set of system conditions. If we talk about compostable plastics, we're talking about having the right amount of air, water, heat, carbon-based materials to make sure that that compost process happens. And what is missing in this calculus is the understanding of where those bottles, let's say a biodegradable or compostable bottle, are going to end up. Are they going to end up in the municipal composting system like the green bin? And are those composting facilities ready to take that material? Or are you suggesting if they're biodegradable that it shouldn't matter if they're getting littered because it won't necessarily take a few days for that material to biodegrade. As I said, you need the right system conditions, as I said before, air, water, moisture, et cetera, for them to biodegrade. So- This too is not completely settled out. And in particular, because in most jurisdictions around the world, we actually don't have organic collection programs. We have them in some more progressive cities and we're going to have them also in Europe, but they're not all over the world. So this is sort of a missing piece. And unfortunately, this plastics problem, there are no easy solutions. As I always say, the most important thing, irrespective of whether it's a bioplastic or regular uh, petroleum-based plastic, we have to collect them. And then we have to process them in the way that's suitable. And what we've been doing traditionally is recycling those plastics. We know that we have much better sorting technology so that we can cycle them by polymer, by color, far better than we could say a mere five, six years ago. So we have to sort of shift our thinking to It doesn't matter what material it is, how are you going to collect it and how are you going to make sure that it ends up not as waste? And that's what those brand owners that are looking at alternative packaging have to consider at every stage in the decision-making process.
0: So the real sustainable solution, if you will, actually sounds like it's a collection of materials and processing and recycling, right?
1: Yes, exactly. That's exactly right.
0: Okay. um, Clarissa, let's, let's take a look at some legislation and what's actually going on in the market. What are some of the key trends shaping the policy on circular economy and resource managing?
1: So there's been a lot of change in terms of legislative policy on waste management over the last, I would say, the last four years. It's been significant. And here are some of the key trends. So first of all, you have, well, The problem with exporting plastics that was traditionally something that countries would do, exporting them to Asian markets. China has, a few years ago, said, we don't want your waste plastics anymore. So that has fundamentally shaken the world of recycling and shaken the world of curbside recycling. Suddenly jurisdictions, like in America, where they were shipping 50% of their plastics to foreign markets, or even Europe, they were doing the same thing. Suddenly they're being forced to deal with the problem for the first time. That's had a major contribution to the development of public policy. The other thing is that we're seeing more and more countries come out with higher recycling targets. And this too is forcing producers to really rethink how their packaging is collected and how it's paid for. We're seeing as well the rising costs in waste management due to low prices of oil, Over the last year and a half plus, it's difficult to move material at a reasonable cost. So that too is forcing legislators to realize that we can't continue this voluntary market-based initiative anymore. And I would say probably the greatest one is the public outcry. We are in an era where we can see images on television, on Facebook, on whatever your chosen social media platform is that are devastating, you know, everything from that classic turtle with its straw in its head to, you know, beaches strewn with litter. And people don't want to see that happen anymore. And they're calling on legislators to do something about it, because it's only legislators that can introduce a piece of public policy that will affect all producers, and they're all going to have to collectively, competing industries, come together and work on the solution together. So that's why we're seeing so much change. And I would also say that, you know, the European Union was a real leader back starting in sort of 2017, 2016, when they released their Circular Economy Action Plan. And many, many governments facing all the issues that I spoke about, are having to try to figure out a solution. And they're looking at what the European Union did, and they're copying them. They're doing things like introducing recycled content mandates, extended producer responsibility, deposit return systems, um, separate collection for organics, and I could go on and on. So we're really starting to see change because I guess you could say for the most part we've come out of a 20-year time span where we have kind of relied on voluntary initiatives, and they have failed. We just haven't really made the kinds of gains that we need to make to start to accelerate that circular economy. So I think those are some of those trends.
0: Okay. And one that you didn't mention, but you did mention the straw and the pollution on the beach, is the single-use plastics directive that went into effect this year, July 3rd, in the EU. Do you think initiatives like that, or even that one specifically, will solve the problem of plastic waste?
1: Yeah, so let me quickly tell you about the Single Use Plastics Directive. It's a directive that was passed for all EU member states, so that's 27 countries in the European Union, made up of about a half a billion people. So, in and of itself, it's going to influence the rest of the world, and it's going to, in particular, affect global companies. It has a few components, but I'll just go through four key ones. The first one is it actually, for the first time, bans single-use products, things like straws and plastic cutlery and plates, styrofoam packaging that you would use for takeaway food. These products are banned technically by this year, 2021. It's going to set a precedent, not only in Europe, because countries can put more products on that banned list individually. But it's also affecting legislators in other countries. They're looking at what Europe has done. They're taking the list. They're adding to the list. And they're introducing these kinds of bans at home. The second thing are design requirements. One thing that single-use plastics directive is it really focuses on plastic beverage bottles. And it says two things. It says producers that are packaging in plastic beverage bottles up to three liters must include recycled content. And that is a big deal for all of Europe because a 25% recycled content in a plastic pet bottle will require producers to source clean recyclate made from PET. And the second one is that they're going to have to member states, countries are going to have to collect 90% of those plastic beverage bottles. So that too is going to have an influence on the collection rates in Europe, but it's also very much having an influence on other countries. Countries are looking at Europe and saying, wow, they just passed a 90% target on a specific sector of packaging or a specific type of packaging that has never been done before. Typically, you know, rates are levied on many, many different types of packaging as a whole, sort of a, a top-down approach. but for the first time, we have a, a bottom-up approach, really focusing on really problematic material. Why did they focus on the plastic beverage bottles? Because they comprise easily at least 80 percent of the top 10 most littered items found around the world by weight or by volume. and that's just the fact. So that's why they focused on those bottles. The other thing that is also very relevant in the single-use plastics directive is that there's an even greater obligation for extended producer responsibility. This means that producers of products, which include things like wet wipes that you would use for babies and also cups with lids on them and cigarettes with filters that have plastic in them and a whole variety of other types of products, those producers, those brand owners, let's say, are going to have to pay for the costs of collecting those problematic products, transporting them, treating them, paying for awareness and educating the public about how bad they are in the natural environment. And, and this is the kicker, they're going to have to pay for the cost of litter cleanup of those products, which effectively means that producers are going to hand over money to municipalities, local governments, so that it can help them pay for the cost of having to clean up those products off their beaches, off their streets, wherever they may be. So this is a major directive. It's also has going to have some labeling requirements and a few other things, and even a prevention target into the future. But those four key elements that I talked about are all the ones that we're seeing starting to spread around the world. Is it going to solve the problem of plastic waste? It's not going to solve the problem because it's fairly specific to a small group of products, but it's certainly going to help. And chances are that over the years that those lists will get bigger and it will send a signal to the innovation sector to start to design products that are scoped effectively out of the single-use plastics directive. Products that are much more sustainable. We're starting to see that happen. And certainly the single-use plastics directive is a very ambitious piece of legislation. And just to add, it got through all of the negotiations and the huge bureaucracy that is the legislation-making process in Europe in a mere eight months. And it wasn't really watered down, the final product from the original version. That is unprecedented. That tells you that legislators all over the world, whether it's in progressive Western European countries or not so progressive Eastern European countries, they all supported this initiative. And I think that's a real testament to where we are today when it comes to the plastic waste crisis.
0: So it sounds like, if I'm listening to you correctly, that the single-use plastics directive combined with an EPR, an effective EPR, an effective DRS, that's really what's going to start to make a huge dent in the plastic pollution problem.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We ran some numbers for the PET industry in Europe, and we showed them that if this directive is implemented properly and the targets are met, Europe alone will see a doubling of the amount of material that is available to the brands that put their products in plastic beverage bottles by, it will double from basically 1.8 million metric tons of PET to 3.2. It's a huge increase, massive, massive gains, all because of this directive.
0: Okay, that sounds very promising. I'd like to turn the attention now to actually a topic we don't particularly care for, and that's the pandemic. In the past, recovery from pandemics, from collapses of economies, has been getting back to business as soon as possible. This time, we're seeing something different, whether it's in Europe or in the US, and we're talking about a green recovery. Are there opportunities with this particular post-COVID recovery to support the move towards a more circular economy?
1: Yeah, so... Every single country is trying to find some way to recover. And sometimes when you're really down, this is the time to implement big change because it can have a great impact on the economy. We know that when we are effectively collecting, sorting and recovering and recycling more and more tons of materials, that at every stage of that process, there are jobs We know this because the research has been done. So you get a lot more jobs per ton that ends up getting recycled than you would per ton that ends up getting collected and sent into a landfill or an incinerator. So we have to start there jobs that we have to move from a world where we're more focused on extracting natural resources and all of the functions that go into the extraction of natural resources, which are very a minimal labor, but a lot of energy and a lot of equipment. And we have to shift to an economy that is much more labor-based, service-based. And this is what a green circular economy will look like. We'll see reuse systems where packaging is washed and reused and recirculated back to things like restaurants. We'll see a world where we're collecting, recycling, keeping that material more regionally based instead of shipping it out to another country. We're seeing some very interesting opportunities to innovate packaging in terms of Biodegradable packaging, like I mentioned earlier, that it's actually biodegradable and technologies that can take those biodegradable packagings, if they're properly collected and put into those systems, and biodegrade them. A lot more investment in composting technologies. So there's so many different business opportunities and economic investments that can be made in everything from the prevention opportunities to the reuse opportunities to the recycling opportunities. And when I say recycling opportunities, I'm talking about high level recycling, closed loop recycling. Those are the kinds of opportunities that exist country by country, region by region that will help us get out of this COVID economic collapse that we're all facing right now. This is really the answer. It is a green recovery. It has to happen. And governments are more and more seeing the connection between making good public policy and seeing those benefits, uh, reaping those benefits.
0: Okay, you've touched on this a bit before. And that's the topic of regulation. Why is that so important? What's wrong with voluntary targets?
1: So we can certainly look at voluntary initiatives from the past. We've had about 30 years of various voluntary initiatives. And, well, I would say that, first of all, they haven't really worked. We also don't have a lot of data because they're voluntary. And often we aren't able to access the very important data from the industry that are trying to meet these voluntary targets. They won't release that data. So we can honestly say that it's not working. For example, on the packaging front, we've had promises, voluntary promises from big companies like Coke and Nestle and Procter and Gamble and all of these big fast consumer good products, they have not succeeded. And that is why we're starting to see such a regulatory push. Why does regulation make sense? Well, regulation makes sense because first of all, it puts all companies on a level playing field. It says you all have to participate in this program or requirement. You all have to comply with the regulation, not just the big ones. And it makes companies, they're able to be green by complying with the regulation, but they're also able to remain competitive. Because the problem with voluntary targets, let me give you an example. If you were to be a company and you would say, I'm going to put 50% recycled content in my bottle because I'm a great company and I believe in the power of recycled content because it truly can reduce the carbon footprint of my packaging. That is great. It's a fantastic sentiment. And I applaud these companies for these voluntary initiatives. But here's the problem. The minute that that price of recycled plastic is higher than virgin plastic, which I'd like to say is the situation right now and has been for some time, the company that's trying to do the right thing is putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage. They cannot be competitive and they cannot do the green thing because their competition is going to buy a cheap version and they're going to end up selling their product on the shelves for cheaper than the good green company. So that's where the regulator steps in. The regulator says, you're all going to do this. You're all going to report. And that's another really important piece. When you have these regulations, these companies have to comply. They have to report audited data so that we know that they're actually complying with the law. And that's what regulation brings. It brings stability to the market. And it brings oversight to the market and monitoring to the market. And what's so interesting is that some of the bigger companies, the ones that are making the pledges and want to do and have for decades been having these voluntary commitments, they are the ones today that are going to government and saying, would you please regulate the entire industry? This is not working for us. It's too difficult for us to try to meet our recycled content targets when the prices go so high that we can't be competitive. But if this affected everybody equally, it would be much easier for us to do it. And those are often the very same companies that are going to legislators and asking them to legislate. There was a great example when the extended produced responsibility law was being amended in Europe it was an initiative of the industry as a whole that came to the European Union and said you need to strengthen the legislation on extended producer responsibility because it's not working in a lot of jurisdictions because it doesn't have this and this and this please put more transparency in please put more of this and put more of that in and that was the you know that's incredible to have an industry group the biggest companies in the world or in this case in Europe coming to legislators and saying please put more legislation in an existing piece of legislation. That's why it's so, so important.
0: Okay, last question, Clarissa. And this, this is a question I really, I think a lot of people will be interested in. Do you have any tips on where and how we should invest in the circular economy? Where would you put your money?
1: Well, as I said earlier, the solution is to collect more and to sort more. So I would be looking at, All of the companies that are delivering the service, both hardware, software, technology, you name it, in collecting and sorting. We know that the technology works. We know that we can collect material efficiently and we can sort it, we can clean it, and we can make it ready for use as feedstock again. This is critically important. We also know that in Europe, they are going to be demanding, as an example, that all packaging be recyclable, I'll put recyclable in quotes, air quotes, but we also know that recyclable will be defined as truly recyclable, being able to take the product and turn it into a material that can be used as primary feedstock that has the same quality as virgin raw material, that can be recycled at scale all over Europe, Um, these are going to be the requirements of the future. So why not invest in the very companies that are going to help Europe get there? I would also put my money into new modes of reuse. We're going to see a lot more reuse. We're probably going to start to see more reuse in the beverage sector and go back to a more modern take on what was an old refillable bottle of the past. And we're going to see more reuse in the to-go sector, the restaurant takeout sector, the fast food sector, where we're going to effectively see reuse models, where companies, restaurants are buying into a reuse model, where they're effectively leasing the packaging from a company that is putting the packaging on the market, and that company can be in the business of marking those packages with individual codes, providing incentives to consumers so they can take them back to different locations. They could be washed and recirculated to the restaurant market. That's just one example. We're seeing already some of of these systems operating in Europe, and we're going to see a lot more into the future. So that's where I would start to put my money. Where we can optimize logistics is a very key area as well. So really focus on collecting, sorting, recycling, reuse companies that are doing this, that have good solutions are the companies of the future. And that's where I put my money.
0: Clarissa, you make all of this sound so easy, but I think you and I both know it's not entirely going to be easy, but certainly very, very encouraging. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're in, you're in Montreal today. So uh, thank you uh, for joining us. And I hope, and I'm pretty sure, that you've managed to infect a listener or two with your enthusiasm and your passion. So thank you for taking the time.
1: Thanks very much. It was a pleasure being with you, me too. All the best. Thanks.
0: I'd like to leave you with a quote from Ursula von der Leyen, President of the EU Commission. The European Green Deal and digitalization will boost jobs and growth, the resilience of our societies and the health of our environment. This is Europe's moment our willingness to act must live up to the challenges we are facing. To learn more, go to reloop.org and tomra.com.